Welcome back to another episode of AMW. Libby and I are so excited to have yet another guest with us today. She has been an active and supportive voice in the adoptee community. Um, if you know her, her name is Ming Foxwalden, and she will be sharing this episode with us today. We are very excited about it. And as you can see in the title, this episode is called Advice to Our Younger Selves. So throughout this session, we're going to be sharing some advice that we wish we had had when we were younger. I know there are a lot of things I wish people had told me when I was younger. Um, and so hopefully this episode is going to be a really great resource for other adoptees out there in the community, younger, older parents as well. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time doing a long intro because I'm really excited to get started. So Ming, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Okay, sure. So hi, everyone. Um, I'm Ming Fox Weldon, and uh, currently I'm in Seattle, Washington, and uh, I've been here for about five years. Um, and just a little bit about my background, I was adopted from Kunming in Yunnan province, 1994, um, at around three and a half, four and a half years old. And I first uh, moved or uh, immigrated <laughs> to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, I spent a few years there, then spent some time in Costa Rica. And then uh, that was about six months and then back to Wisconsin. And then the majority of my life I spent in New Hampshire. Um, so I've kind of been all over. Um, I also have an older sister and a younger brother. Um, my older sister is actually biologically related to the parents that adopted my brother and I. And then my brother, he's actually adopted from Peru. So um, I would say we have, I guess, what's considered a diverse family. However, um, I would uh, say that, yeah, there's definitely lots of nuances to that. Um, also, the way in which I came into the family, um, uh, definitely contributed to like kind of my role or position in the family because I was adopted as what would have been the middle child because of my age, but because of the order of things, I would have, should have been considered the youngest. So that's something that I like to let people know about. And also, um, I also came with um, having to get surgeries and such um, for a birth condition that I was born with. Uh, and um, that was also a big contributing factor to my growing up years um, because it um, helped shape my identity today. But also um, there was a lot of like complexities with it, both in China and America. So that's something that I like to inform certain people about. Of course, that's a more personal aspect of my life. So I'm careful about sharing that with um, the general you know, public. Um, but yeah, so that's just a little bit about myself, and um, and then gener generally speaking, I um, actually graduated college about seven years ago. So I, you know, majored in Mandarin and also minored in anthropology at the University of Vermont. And um, now I am just trying to, like everyone else, find my way, try to decide what I would like to um, find a career in versus you know my love for different hobbies and interests. So um, that's currently where I'm at. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ming. I have a quick question before we sure. get started, if that's okay with you. What was okay. it like growing up in a family? You said your brother was adopted from Peru, correct? And then yes. your parents have one biological child. Yeah. What was that dynamic like having two adoptees in the family, but from different countries? Oh, well, I guess one word would be complicated, um, just because um, I think that there was a challenge of trying to balance, you know, both cultures um, and in the household and um, for me personally, it was like 
a little challenging and sometimes frustrate or lots like very frustrating at times just because I felt there was a strong bias toward the Latin American culture versus Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, and like even just down to literally the tablecloth, like it was very evident that my adoptive parents had an easier time to, yeah, um, <clears throat> gain access to those kind of materials or um, cultural um attributes, I guess. Um, yeah. So that was something that um, was evident in my growing up. And also in regards to just like my identity as a Chinese adoptee or Chinese American, mm-hmm. that was something that I had to kind of unfortunately kind of pave the way for myself. And I mean, it's it's fortunate in one way because I grew the um, ability to speak for myself and have, you know, um, advocacy, self-advocacy uh, mm-hmm. in myself but it is kind of a lonesome experience because uh, my adoptive parents took on what was called I call it the or many people call it the colorblind approach which is that you know because I was adopted by them then I belong to them and mm-hmm. therefore I should assimilate to quote-unquote the white American whatever that is uh, mentality on things um, mm-hmm. and so it was very it was a stark difference in terms of even just down to language. Like I came into the family knowing um, some dialect of Chinese um, mm-hmm. and um, the expectations for me to, you know, as they say, live up to whatever it means to be Chinese was pretty much kind of uh, it implied in a lot of interactions and a lot of events in my life. And mm-hmm. um, I would say it's kind of a form of tokenizing because it basically implied that like I should be the spokesperson for Chinese adoptees slash Chinese person, Chinese American, like all of these little like small yeah. subcategories, if you will. So that was something that I, kind of, you know, face constantly or just the idea of like, oh, you know, like hopefully one day you'll get really good at Mandarin and you'll become fluent. Um, and so, you know, that's why I went to college for it. But unfortunately, I'm not fluent. And so I feel a bit of shame in that and mm-hmm. um, it's a constant reminder of like how I'm not enough yeah. um so just to kind of compare or elaborate on that but um also with my brother I think his understanding of his own adoption is obviously very different than mine and mm-hmm. um I also think that it might have helped that my parents you know they took us to different concerts and things um so that were you know geared toward Peruvian music um Mm -hmm. versus like going to chinese lunar new year events was um i mean it was nice but it was again hosted by adoptive parents um Mm, through like families with children from china new england that sort of thing so again it's like i got to taste those things but not fully immersed um so uh hopefully that kind of answers some of your questions yeah it does thank you it was really interesting to hear that and also sorry i have one more question i'm trying to pick your brain right now um Because your brother was adopted and you were as well, mm-hmm. were you able to maybe relate on certain things? Are you too close? What was that relation like, relationship like having, or I guess currently having an adopted brother as well? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, actually, to be honest, we didn't really have a close relationship for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just the implication that um, my family assumed that because we were adoptees that we should get along and we should be mm-hmm. able to relate to each other. I think that was kind of unfortunately a, a misstep on their part because um, I, I think I'd like to compare, I guess, the idea around just anyone who has any kind of common sort of beginning or interest or, you know, identity is that, you know, 
there might be some common threads, there might not be. And also the assumption that um, certain people had it regarding like the fact that they thought that we were twins, which obviously we're not. And oh, wow. um, that was kind of like an interesting discovery to make when I got older. That, you know, my parents would say, oh, yeah, when you were young and you're obviously your brother was young. Uh, people used to think that you guys were twins. And mm. um, I think the other part of it is that like. I think it was just the way that my parents reared us too. Um, maybe if they had reared us in a more equal manner and also mm -hmm. with proper um, respect to boundaries and, you know, just, just general, like maybe not favoring one child over the other, maybe mm -hmm. that would have contributed to a more equal kind of relationship and trust or build of trust. Yeah. Um, this is just observations from, you know, growing up and dealing with a lot of drama and things. And also just the idea that there was a high, I mean, there was a, I think a bias that, you know, since he was adopted at a few months old or okay. technically one month old versus me being adopted at three and a half, four and a half years old. Um, this is kind of a conclusion or th yeah, a conclusionary thought that like, uh, I think my adoptive parents hoped that I was someone who could have been molded very quickly um, mm -hmm. as a, toddler which is an incorrect um assumption to make on a human <laughs> child right. yeah um, where I had an established you know system in China with the people mm -hmm. the food you know down to my clothing down to my yeah. scheduling everything like that and um it was a big disruption as well in terms of the fact that you know I was also bouncing from the hospital because I had surgeries in China as well mm -hmm. as the orphanage and for the SWI social welfare yeah. institute so there was a lot of other sort of um, factors that would play into why I think um, my whole system, my whole self was in a, you know, a world of shock uh, to, to put it lightly. Uh, yeah. So, and I think the assumption is that of course um, I would have been more compliant, um, which I was not as compliant and I still am not compliant in the sense that I kind of have my own will and way of doing things and mm -hmm. um, that's always been sort of a threat to other people's sort of understanding of who I am um, because that kind of goes against what they hoped I would become um, so that's something that I can elaborate more on but essentially I think that favoritism was a big thing and because my sister is also biologically related um, of course um, to be honest a bio child does yeah. tend to get a little more um spoiled in not a direct sense but in an indirect sense where you know she's the firstborn um she's also five years older so she had you know a few years between us all and uh yeah so and it's also because she also has you know the same um well genetics right as both the parents so there's that kind of bond or connection and then um in addition I think the idea around you know nature versus nurture or Nature, you know, that, that relationship, I think, is very important to consider when it comes down to relationship building and stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate it. Of course. Um, I know, I think just a quick takeaway from that that I'm getting is like, yes, we can all be adoptees, but we have such incredibly different experiences that mm. it's not fair to compare the two. And it's not fair to say that one adoptee is growing up a certain way. Mm -hmm and compare that to another adoptee because these people because there are people even if you're a toddler you're a child you're I think when you're getting adopted at that age and I don't know from experience but I feel like just looking at childhood development 
Mm. By the time you're two to four years old, you're relatively really aware of what's going on around you. You know people, you have language, you have memories. And so I think that just being adopted at an older age adds on this whole other layer of like intense experience that can, Mm -hmm. you know, like however you handle trauma and experiences Mm. in general, just it can really shape how how you grow up as an adult. Um, Yeah. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you so much. Of course. Um, Libby, is there anything else you would like to add before we hop into this? Uh, no, I think we're, I think okay. we're good to go. Okay. Ming, are you comfortable with going first with maybe one piece of advice? Sure. Okay. Um, I think one piece of advice I wished I could have known about or, yeah, been exposed to was the idea around, um, learning how to discern who or what adult I could trust to talk about things that happened um, and also having the proper language. Um, This is something that I've only talked to uh, very, you know, limited people, but um, this is something that I think needs to be talked about. And just a slight trigger warning here, it obviously has to do with um, abuse. And I think more on the ideas around, you know, mental, emotional, uh, and sexual abuse. And also, this is something that, of course, I'll just kind of gloss over just because um, it's a pretty extensive kind of concept. But basically, if I had known that I had an adult that I could trust and that would, you know, have my back, I think that would have saved me a world of, you know, re-traumatization and also allowed me to have a voice. that that truncated my ability to speak on my own, especially when I endured multiple uh, cases or situations, not only um, with my immediate, you know, childhood, but, you know, that kind of replicated in college, for example, or in other scenarios in my life. And um, I know that people say, oh, you know, you're not alone in this because many other people have experienced this. But the caveat I have with that is that, in essence, yes, I was not alone in experiencing these kind of traumas. But in how I faced them, that was a very individual experience. And I wished that I had been better acknowledged and trusted um, when I did come out with some of these allegations, because um, maybe then I would have developed a better sense of confidence as an adult and also as a child. And um, I think one other aspect was the idea around bodily autonomy, which is something that's being talked about more, you know, in the current time. Um, I wish that that had been something that was encouraged, especially because um, just looking back at my life in the orphanage, as well as in the hospital and just in other scenarios, I did not have bodily autonomy. I mean, I was constantly handled by people. Mm -hmm. whether that be caretakers, doctors, nurses, everyone. Um, In some ways it was appropriate, in other ways maybe not. It's still a mystery. And Mm -hmm. I think that if more adoptive parents were informed um, on the fact that they don't know their child's history and um, they need to be aware that their actions and words to build trust and, you know, bond with their child, yeah, is very critical to their child's sense of self. And Mm -hmm. I wish that that had been something that was emphasized in my parents, you know, home study or, you know, um, discussion with the adoption agency, et cetera, because 
maybe I would have turned out to be someone different and someone who has more confidence and um, has, you know, of course I, I'm building confidence. Everyone has to somehow build confidence um, no mm-hmm. matter what happens, but it can be, it's a, it's a lonesome kind of experience at times because even if I've talked to certain friends, I have to be aware, like, I don't want to trigger anyone. I don't want to upset anyone, but at the same time, I need to have confidence in telling someone if I feel I want to share, but that's something that overall as a young, you know, 10 year old, 11 year old, 15 year old, all the way up to, I'm almost 30 now. It's been almost, uh, what, 20, almost 17 years since the main event, if you will. And that's something that I wish that, um, there was more training in and more understanding. And this is a big taboo topic in America abroad, um, especially when it comes down to children enduring any of that kind of abuse. And, um, I think especially with adoptees, that's something that I really want the world to know is that not all adoptees have a great, safe, perfect, you know, rainbows and butterflies kind of environment. And some of us have been put through the ringer and some of us have put through, been put through like, you know, a semi-ringer. But ultimately, um, <clears throat> the reality is that some of us understand suffering in a different way. Um, and none of us should have ever experienced that. Um, and I just want society both in America and abroad to understand that because, um, again, adoption is not a, you know, adoption should not be a one-sided relationship, but unfortunately for many adoptees, that is the case. Um, and it comes down to control really. So, um, just kind of, I know that was kind of an elaborate answer, but I just wanted to be able to share that because that's something that I've only disclosed with a very small amount of people along with other kind of publications, if you will, but in a very, um, I guess, highly high discretion (laughs) um, kind of manner. But um, yeah, I appreciate your asking that question about what I would have wanted to know as a younger person. Well, thank you for sharing that. It was really I think it was really impactful for me to hear just because I think it's mm. making me rethink my own experience and reflect on it. Um, and also, too, when people are adopting mm-hmm. children, they're adopting a human who has this past. Like, say this is the adoption here. I know we're on a podcast and so no one can see. But here's the adoption. Yeah. And then here's the point pre-adoption and then the point yes. post-adoption. And then there's this whole chunk of life pre-adoption mm-hmm. that happened mm-hmm. that the adoptive parents mostly, most likely don't know. Yes. The babies, if they have language, they don't know how to express that. And if they don't have language, it's like just their bodies that are holding those memories. So they're not really fully aware. But then I think it's really important that the adoptive parents recognize that there's this whole chunk of past that happened yes. that we just don't know. Yes. And there's like I a curtain agree. over it. We can't uncover it. So mm-hmm. and it, like everything you said, it's really important that people when they're adopting they're mindful of this most likely I hate to say but like most likely very traumatic traumatic past that this child has had and they need to be mindful about like how do I bring this new person into this space so that they're feeling comfortable and loved yes um, which exactly. obviously it, there's no manual it's really complicated I it is I'm not a yeah. parent I have no idea how to do it but <laughs> as an adoptee I can recognize mm-hmm. um that for sure okay. yeah go ahead yeah, I think it's really important too that like a lot of some adoptive parents are like, you can talk to me about anything, like come to me with all this. But the truth is, is like, you'll 
go to them with all these concerns and either they won't have the answer or they just completely cannot relate and don't understand what you're trying to tell them and it can come off as dismissive and so sometimes (laughs) like the parent figure is not not the person that you're supposed to go and talk to about these things because they won't know how to respond and they don't understand and it's really important to know that like you have an outside figure that can also be able to give you another perspective as well because sometimes the parents I mean as much as they might have good intentions in their heart there's just some things that they won't ever be able to understand and Mm -hmm. that's okay but you need to have like another support system too yeah definitely yeah a good network is always yeah important (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah I feel like for me like we had we were adopted in a large group it was Libby, me, and six other babies. Okay. But, like, having that growing up was helpful, but then we never really talked about the adoption. It wasn't until, like, I we would have one-on-one conversations with, like, here and there between a few girls in the group, but mm-hmm. it wasn't really a widely talked about <laughs> subject. It was all just, like, oh, we're friends. We were all from the same orphanage, whatever. Right. But it wasn't until the last, probably, like, I think Libby and I talked about it throughout high school, middle school. Um uh-huh. And we didn't talk about it really. I feel like in college, we didn't talk about it all that much. Mm-hmm. And then within the last, I guess, kind of when the podcast started, that's when I really started getting more involved yeah. with it. Um, and like actually being aware of the adoptee community that exists that I didn't know about before. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, that's Libby. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Libby, do you want to go next? Oh, man. How can I follow that up? <laughs> I know. Um, I think something that's really important that I wish that I knew as a kid or when I was younger is that my parents have mental health struggles, but sometimes they'll get upset or they'll, they'll get angry or maybe they won't be able to verbalize what's going on to you because you're too young to understand. But no, they like you didn't do anything wrong. It's them. They're trying to take care of themselves and you, and that's really hard. And I didn't realize until, honestly, I got to college and I was learning how to take care of my own mental health that I realized, especially like now that I take care of my parents and I have a husband, I realize that taking care of your mental health and someone else's is really exhausting. So I wish that I knew that like my mom like has really bad depression and she gets in like depressive swings. And I used to be like, mom is so annoying like I hate her like she's so upset and I don't know why and like but now I can see that like I was pissing her off she was in a depressive state and I just didn't understand that and she was trying really hard to take care of me but she she really just needed to take care of herself and Mm -hmm. so I think that's something that I mean I don't think a kid should be burdened with that but I also think it would be good to tell them and let make sure that they understand that like as a parent, I'm going through something and it's not about you and I'm doing my best to take care of you. But I want you to know that like if, you know, we get into an argument, it's not necessarily something that's your fault because I think that I held a lot of that personally and I really shouldn't have. Yeah, that's that's difficult. I think growing up too, because I, I saw a little bit of it through your window and just like when we would talk and I think it's difficult when, especially I think as adoptees, we have this... Um, I guess you could say like need to always want to be perfect and like to yeah. make sure that we're enough and yeah. so we're, like mm-hmm. overcompensating. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, how, like, how do we not piss off mom? She's in a bad mood. So we're like managing ourselves to mm-hmm. make sure that we can mold into what our parents want or need. Um, yeah. Because 
you know, just bringing in this very controversial idea. It's like, oh, our parents brought us to America. Like, we're supposed to be having this better life. Yeah. And, and now, like, looking back, I know maybe I don't know the circumst- circumstances I was born into. So maybe that was true or not. Um, but I think when you're from five years old or younger to, like, 18, especially when you're living at home, especially, uh, yeah. it's hard to regulate that and be like okay and step back and be like okay this is my mom's problem this is not my problem but then Mm -hmm. when we go to college and when we leave our families we that's I feel like when we have the time to self-reflect and realize maybe what was actually going on Uh, yeah it was definitely like not something that I knew earlier yeah what were you gonna say Ming I'm sorry oh no it's okay I was just I'm I'm like wow it's hitting all the points that I definitely agree with and Mm -hmm. uh I would also mention the idea around um like intergenerational trauma because like mm-hmm. that's something that is rarely talked about regarding adoptees in the sense that like our parents um I don't know how old your parents are both of you but my parents are in their <clears throat> early 70s <clears throat> excuse me and um um having done some research and just learning about I think they're part of what's considered the silent uh generation that's just right after or excuse me the before the boomer generation mm-hmm. um um so then both of or my mom's parents or her mother was you know um what's it called born or in the early 1900s right and that's kind of crazy to say but um just the fact that you know she experienced a lot in that time frame and um then that was passed on to my mom and then my mom you know had her own issues um kind of like what Libby was describing in terms of also the late understanding of like um, um, her parents, you know, mental health issues, right? And I think that um, this is something I'm struggling with currently in the sense of, like, you know, my parents went through their own stuff, I'm going through my own stuff, but the the main caveat that I have with it is that, um, to be honest, it kind of brings a lot of anger in the sense that I wish that my parents had worked on their stuff before they decided to have children, and I know that other people can say, oh, that's so controversial. But really, the honest answer is that there was a strong implication when I was growing up that I, like um, like you said, Addie, which was that, you know, this high perfectionism, you know, was unfortunately a default for me and many other adoptees. And this idea also of like, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I self-sabotage um, myself because it's a means of trying to inadvertently gain attention to my environment and Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people might say well wow you're so that's kind of manipulative or that's kind of dramatic but again I think some of this is just based on the fact that my environment brought that out of me if you will Um, and again one could say well you are only responsible for yourself no one else is responsible for you and your you know how you feel like you have to direct your own show right but like you both said um, it's a lonely battle that you're fighting because you want to be taken care of, but then, you know, building that trust with the people that are supposed to take care of you, mm-hmm. but if they can't take care of themselves in certain ways, or they're getting caught in their own, you know, personal, de- um, you know, battles, right? So yeah. there's a, there's a separation of like, it's like a, what's that called? Like a ravine, if you call it, you know, like a space in which you can't, you can't meet in the middle. Cause if you meet in the middle, like it's just constant stress and chaos. Right. And, but then if you feel like you're putting yourself out there, like you're putting a hundred percent in, 
to the relationship with your parents or, you know, one parent or the other or whomever you're, you know, interacting with. And they're putting in 50%, but you don't know that. And then you're just feeling like, okay, I mean, if we're going to be honest, this kind of creates an, a form of reabandonment, I guess, yeah. emotionally speaking, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm not a psychiatrist or anything like that. But just from my reading and talking to people, it's very evident that, you know, this this kind of stress with, you know, trauma that is unresolved, right? Yeah. And it leaks into your personal relationships, whether with your peers or, you know, your significant other or partner um, or your even just your professional life with your mm-hmm. coworkers or your schoolmates. Um, so this is just something I'm, I'm really happy, Libby, that you brought that up and Addie as well, just for, again, this is an important conversation that I wished was talked about on a daily, but not like to, you know, to death, but like consistently, because I think that would uplift not just us adoptees, but those that we interact with and put everyone on the same page. But anyways, yeah, Yeah. I appreciate the um, anecdote. Thank you for adding that part on. No, parent-child relationship is perfect I don't think that's possible (laughs) yeah for sure and but I I don't know I just I really liked that point that you brought up about like dealing with your own trauma because a baby's not going to fix anything it's adding at least 18 years of responsibility (laughs) yeah financial burden like and I'm not saying like financial burden in a bad way but like Mm. you can't be in your whole pool of crap Mm. and thinking like being like, oh, well, if we just have a baby, that's going to fix everything because it'll be this little happy yeah. thing. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that's just another important thing to emphasize. Yeah. And in addition, I was thinking about, I mean, I think hopefully you all have probably heard about, you know, the white savior complex that's been talked about mm-hmm. in a variety of you know ways, whether that be, um, you know, with adoption or other kind of, um, I guess, savioristic kind of situations. Um uh, like volunteering and whatnot, right? And so something that I've come to understand is like, um, Addie, you were talking about the, you know, the, the motivation to adopt and just how that for me and for many other people um, has been a very ambiguous kind of reason. And um, I think that's something that plays into our identity as adoptees or international adoptees. Uh, or transnational, transracial adoptees, right? So we got all these multi-layers of, you know, categories that we're all working with um, in, to a degree, right? And um, basically what I'm trying to say is that, like, that's if there had been more discussion with professionals in the field of, uh, I mean, child-rearing, I guess, and, the, the, like, what, is it, what does it mean to build a family and what does that you know, how is that going to play out for you? And, you know, how are you going to manage, um, um, not just on the typical, like, you know, child safety locks and stuff, but like more on the emotional and the psychological um, aspects, because I think that that would have ultimately not resolved completely, but at least touched upon, you know, what we talked about, which was the, uh, you know, the intergenerational trauma, but also because there's a culture difference, because all of us are from the United States. So of course there's that aspect, right? But I think, you know, regarding the white savior complex, I wish that that had been kind of um, introduced at least or talked about because maybe that would have given people a second thought to be like, why are we doing this? Why are we going across the world to Mm -hmm. adopt? 
Um, and, you know, of course, there's that argument that people have nowadays, which is, well, why don't you adopt um, domestically? Oh, well, it's too expensive. You know, there's that generic conversation that all of us are in to a degree aware of. Um, or if not, then I guess I'm introducing new news or in new information. But I guess the thing that I think is frustrating as someone who, you know, is learning this now for myself, and I'm sure you all are also in your own, um, like, feelings about it, too. But it's just, um, it's, it's it comes down to the work. And I feel like I think that's why some of us do maybe come off as the angry adoptee, because we're all having a really great discussion. I appreciate it. But it's like, why is it that we're the ones talking about it, right? Why is it that we're the ones piecing together things mm -hmm. and deciding, wait a second, how come this doesn't make sense? How mm -hmm. come this doesn't make sense? And again, I'm not saying that we should just sit back and let things happen because that's not who all of us are, right? We're very driven individuals in our own way. But that's just something that I, I kind of wish had been kind of like, I mean, that sounds violent, but be into the heads of our adoptive parents mm -hmm. in society. And, and even nowadays, the, it, many adoptive parents nowadays are not any different than our adoptive parents now. And it's really scary and sad because those adoptees who are, you know, in grade school, high school, and I mean, y'all are, you know, out, either out of high school or college, right? And yeah. or in college, right? And I'm out of college. So we're already, we are the, you know, pioneers of this. And that's mm -hmm. why I'm like, this is so frustrating that, you know, the, the, the younger generation right now, they're going to grow up going to college if they want to go to college, mm -hmm. whatever, right? They're going to be having the same conversation that you, you and I, all of us are having right now at some point. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, in one way, it's great because that means they're also realizing and creating a new generation of good thinking, right? But in another way, it's kind of tragic because it's like we're reinventing the wheel when we didn't have to. I think too adoption it's not a new thing it's been happening no. for centuries the yeah. format in which it happens that can vary but the uh -huh. idea of like adoption whether it's like aunt and uncle adopting their nephew or niece whatever or like people adopting another child from a completely different biological what, what is it like tree yeah. um adoption has been around for so long but there's so little literature and education on it and like the psychology behind it and like how that separation at any age, whatever, whenever that adoption happens, there's so little information on that. And then there's also like so little adopt or information on, I feel like international and I could be wrong. I don't really, I haven't done really a lot of research on this, but there's so little information on effects of international adoption and how that affects the child as they grow up into adults. Mm -hmm. Because I know for a fact that if I had, been raised in China and stayed there, I would be a completely different person than I am today because there are yeah. countless things that I wouldn't have had to deal with. Yeah, for sure. And on top of that, even if there is information, unfortunately, mm -hmm. many of it, much of it is biased. And it's, it's also through a, um, what I call, or what many people might call is like kind of the white Western mentality or the, um, the Western model for, um, what's okay, what's not okay. And I mean, even the ability to talk, like I've said this in previous conversation, but I mean, I'm really honored to have the opportunity to talk and the, it's a privilege to be able to discuss our feelings on this. And I think that's great because I want to be, I mean, it's, it's corny as heck, but I want to be the voice for the voiceless, right? For those mm -hmm. who don't have the chance to talk or communicate. Um, and I hope I can encourage people to talk if they want. 
Um, of course, there's um, there's no you know true recipe of you know correct or incorrect way of talking, but um, I think yeah, I mean I think it'd be really great that there would be more you know knowledge and information that you know um, not only adoptees should have to you know quote unquote do the legwork on. Um, I mean I applaud those who have you know wrote books, made movies, documentaries, shorts, you know blogs, um, and you know. There's plenty of adoptee advocates out there who, you know, are advocating for people to open up their mind, not necessarily adopting or like advocating for adoption, but um, that's a whole nother group of people. But the point I'm trying to make is that um, I just like I agree with you, Addie, is that there needs to be more sound and current information that's, mm-hmm. you know, um, like comprehensible because some information is a little like. Uh, well, like a thesis, for example, it's sometimes beyond uh, like a g- generic person or common person's mm-hmm. knowledge. So I think there needs to be a different levels of, you know, interpretation and grade so people can understand how to communicate. Like accessibility. Yes, exactly. Yeah. With Chinese American adopt- adoption in particular, just because that's what I'm familiar with. Sure. I feel like there's not a lot of, first of all, there's not a whole ton of us. There's, well, there's a pretty good bunch of us, but... Mm-hmm. there's so I feel like there's not that many that are very old I mm-hmm. feel like a lot of them were born in the 80s and I mean you're what 50s I guess if my math is right like you're about 50-ish give or take if you're born in the 80s and that's not very far ahead of us it's such like a mm-hmm. small generation of us yes and it's there's so much in such a little bit of time and yes. I think that escalates the intensity of the lack of information out there for these Asian American adoptees yeah, and just Asian adoptees in general mm-hmm. um, because I feel like our age group because we're 23 mm-hmm. we're kind of like in the middle of like the really young ones and then the older ones and <laughs> so ahead of us I don't I haven't noticed a ton of media output from the older adoptees but I've been noticing a lot from this middle generation I guess if we want to divide into threes like this yeah, middle yeah, generation yeah, yeah. Like the 90s and maybe early thousands. Mm -hmm. Um, But really before that, I haven't. And of course, too, media has changed a ton with like Facebook and whatever social media there is out there. But Mm -hmm. it's just the format in which we're getting our information is completely different. And now there's this whole new level of connectivity, which I think is really changing um, the adoption community just globally. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And on top of that, I think just to kind of add to the your question mm-hmm. or query about like the older generation or the first wave of adoptees um those who were adopted around the 1990s and mm-hmm. um i think 1995 is the end break or yeah end part of that first wave something like that mm-hmm. um i can't remember how people divide it but the point i'm making is that like i in my observations um having met some of those older adoptees to be honest many of them are still what is considered like you know in the fog, right? And um, I know that's been a highly controversial topic because some people feel, you know, of course there's this idea around gatekeeping, like, you know, who goes in, who doesn't go in kind of thing. But yeah. ultimately I think in the adoption world it's very nuanced and complicated because some people feel, you know, okay, finally I've gotten out of the fog. This is so liberating and great. And I, I'm now learning like where how I came, how I came about and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then 
on top of that, I think at the end of the day, I don't, I personally don't have a problem with people who are either in the fog or out of the fog, right? I think, you know, everyone, we're learning at our own pace, we're, you know, who we're exposed to, what knowledge, you know, what information, and uh, uh, it all comes down to drive, too, because some of us really want to learn this stuff, and that's great. Some of us are, you know, busy doing other things in our life, and that's also fine, too. Mm-hmm. But I also think in some ways, some people do want to, as they say, you know, they don't know that they're in the fog, but they want to stay in the fog because it's more comfortable. It's more familiar. Um, and it does make my heart break personally, because I want those people to, you know, hopefully confront themselves um, in a healthy way and confront their own, you know, insecurities and reasons for why certain things happen or don't happen. Um, because I care about people's, you know, personal growth and, you know, um, yeah, I just, I, I, I mean, that would be a nice emphasis, if you will, like a wish mm-hmm. <laughs> to have. But um, realistically speaking, um, the older adoptees that I've encountered, many of them are trying to be more open and such. But I think it all comes down to the family, too, because many people have been raised in very, like, I would say, kind of an isolating environment where they, you know, they don't get to interact with the public much. Or maybe they were, I mean... I'm not saying all homeschoolers have this, but many of my friends who are homeschooled, they didn't interact with anyone outside their family um, and maybe their neighbor down the road, you know? So that was about the extent of their exposure to other people. Um, and I mean, that was before internet times, so, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that contributed a little bit. But I think the idea comes down to like, also, yeah, drive as well as exposure and as well mm-hmm. as like, um, the ability to have like self-reflection because yeah. I think some people are like, no, I'm just going to go to work, go to school. You know, I'm going to go on this one track and you know, everything else like, yeah, maybe I have a hobby, two or three hobbies. Okay. We're good. Yeah, I'm good. You know, mm-hmm. but I think that's a lot of ways, like reasons why certain people, co- that's how they cope. And I, yeah. it, uh, I want to encourage that people can cope hopefully in healthy ways and, find you know the support but like you said Addie, accessibility mm-hmm. that's a very good point is yeah tough <laughs> it is really tough um I'm gonna rewind real quick can you quick share with our listeners exactly what the fog is in case they don't know oh yeah sure um so the fog is um I would say it's like kind of like the not um the pre like sort of exposure or awakening, if you will, of like understanding one's identity in this case with adoption, right? You could be in a fog for anything, right? And mm-hmm. um, I think that the fog also means that it's essentially like you're in the dark and now you're out in the light when you get out of the fog. And I think that's a pretty, you know, stark ex- example or mm-hmm. yeah, explanation. Um, at least that's what I've understood. And I feel like you can go through multiple, I would say, like realizations and you know, you can be in the fog for a while, out of the fog, and then you can be in another fog. So that's how I've understood it. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a beautiful kind of idea or concept, because it just kind of shows that like, it's kind of like the wearing the rose colored glasses. That's another kind of example that might be more clear for people. But is that, you know, you take, you finally take off the glasses and you're like, holy moly, (laughs) I see a whole different world. I I see a whole different me. You know, I see a whole different... Um, you know, my friends and family and, and you, and I think it, it helps to um, push someone along in life 
so that they can want to do better for themselves and so that they can want to face their own, you know, demons, I guess, right? We all have little skeletons in our closet and stuff. Um, but also just it, it forces us to also confront. I mean, in all honesty, some people would call the fog is like, you know, you have to confront the industry, right, of adoption. And that's something that a lot of people don't like to talk about because um, there's this argument of, you know, being anti-adoption for adoption or pro-adoption, if you will. And of course, it's a spectrum, in my opinion. Um, and of course, anyone else can argue different. But ultimately, yeah, I think coming out of the fog is a very um, challenging experience. It's not like a walk in the park. And it's definitely something that, you know, you have to be willing to uh, it's okay to take a hiatus too. I think that if you give yourself permission to do that, I think that's most important because, again, the part of the human experience or condition is hopefully that you become stronger because you go through certain experiences, not because you want to destroy yourself uh, by going through a painful experience. But um, that's my general um, takeaway. <laughs> That was great. I I'm I would say I'm on the same page with that um, mm. as you are. Okay, can I shift this conversation a little oh, bit? Yeah. Okay. So, some advice that I was thinking about, like if I were to tell my younger self, is something that it has to do a lot with physical features. And mm -hmm. I know I grew up in a very white town. There was like three other Asians in my elementary school grade that I can think of maybe like six of us in my grade by the time I got to high school and my high school was like uh, my grade I think was like a little under 200 so like six Asians out of like 200 kids it's not that many um but growing up I always had kids like telling me my eyes were slanty or I had a really flat nose and it's like why do you look like that I'm like I don't know why do you look like that so I think something that I wish like younger self me knew was like I'm going to grow to really like these features. I'm going to grow to like the shape of my eyes, my high cheekbones, my hair, stuff like that. And I wish, because I know especially now with all this media happening, there's the Instagram influencers who have these like beautiful bodies, perfectly bridged to nose, their eyes, like, you know, eyes, yeah. eyebrows, whatever. It's all these like idealistic features we could say, and I'm doing air quotes, but um, <laughs> yeah. I think that I wish like younger adoptees, especially if you're Asian, because that's what I can relate to. It's like, I hope that you learn to love those features because they're not something bad. It's something that's, it's like part of you. I hope, you know, I'm not against plastic surgery, but I don't think it's something that you should feel like you have to change to enhance your worth. And being told that your eyes are slanty and weird looking for the first, I don't know, too many years of your life, it's damaging. But then, as you said earlier, it's like building confidence is a process and you have to start somewhere. So I, yeah. I think it's important that especially younger people know with this whole new wave of social media and influencers and whatever that your eyes and your, the bridge of your nose and your height are not going to be or I hopefully for me it's like they're not going to be your biggest demons they're not going to be something that you fixate over mm -hmm. I don't know if either of you yeah. had issues when you were younger with that stuff yeah I think well like also like right now there's the um that fox eye trend mm, that's oh going yeah. on, <laughs> where they like you know i think it was like i think it was Gigi headed i'm not sure but like they came out and they were like everybody's now pulling their eyes up doing yeah. the eye makeup to pull it up and like that's something that 
like I used to get that the how do you blind an Asian with dental floss joke like all the time and my eyes are not my eyes are not that small either and people would comment on that too they're like you don't look Chinese your eyes are pretty big and it's just like nowadays like seeing influencers doing that fox eye just bugs the living shiitake out of me because I'm just like yes I agree with you this is something that like I I've had to deal with like me hating my big eyes because they didn't make me look Chinese and then the older I get me loving my big eyes because this is what like Chinese people wanted were like the big eyes and I was blessed to have pretty almond shaped eyes and Mm. then going back again being like well like what is like the whole like everything about like my eyes has just been like flip-flopped and then now with this fox eye trend just having to be like wow this is something that people are gonna look at me and they're not gonna like as much as they do on all these white girls that pull their eyes up even though my eyes are like naturally shaped like this and it's just a load of crap but like I yeah that was a little, I, that was a little off topic, but like no, it's, it's just it's, something that I think like, it's completely relevant because it's yeah, showing it's how really, the times are changing. Yeah, yeah, but like it's just really annoying that like you finally will learn to accept it after mm-hmm. being criticized about it, and then for someone to just widespread be like, "This is what beauty is," and then you to yeah. still not fit that is just it's really it's hard. It's mm-hmm. annoying. And I think ba- um, just to kind of respond to your um, observations, Libby, I totally can relate and agree with you on the whole like flip-flopping of kind of standards, if you will, or expectations. And um, I think one thing I would note is the fact is, yes, I think all of us in our own way have had, you know, experiences with people being frankly rude and disrespectful yeah. and the audacity that people have to just like blurt out something. and. I mean, maybe I'm a little more harsh, but I don't really give a lot of kids like, you know, benefit of the doubt because Mm. I mean, the, you know, people make jokes about kids being very blunt and, you know, unfiltered, but at the end of the day, who's giving that kind of feedback? Who's, who's Mm -hmm. contributing to these kids being unfiltered? And again, I'm not trying to say that people need to censor their kids and, you know, control them, but I'm saying that there needs to be Um, a level of compassion and understanding that, you know what, just because someone looks different doesn't make it right for you to one stare or talk loudly about them. You can be discreet and, you know, you know, talk to your parent or whoever you're going to the grocery store with and be like, mom, dad, how come I, you know, I I was just curious about this person I saw at the grocery store, you know, and like if if you want to build off a conversation like that, but in private and home or maybe in the car like, I think that's, that's more respectful. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in, in school, too, I had kids, I mean, I had someone ask me, can you see? And I literally looked at them and was like, well, do you think I can't see? Because I can definitely see you talking. Like, mm-hmm. we have to come up with these better comebacks. And it sucks, because that means that, you know, I mean, in irony, where our, our intelligence is higher, but whatever. Um, and <laughs> obviously, that's a kind of a tongue in cheek joke. But the point I'm making is that, like, we develop these ways to smarten up because people are so dumb. And I mean, I'm just going to be blank or point blank about it because if people had an extra ounce of brain cell in them, they would be able to know that that is so inappropriate to ask. And that's so inappropriate to disclose like your opinion of someone who you don't even know. And 
um, ironic, right? But anyways, um, the point is, is like, um, I, I also think in terms of our, you know, ideas around, you know, our body image concerns, as well as, you know, down to our eating habits, down to our weight, like, because of the concept about Western view versus Eastern view and China and, you know, like all these little nuanced things are what contributes to this idea around what, you know, beauty, quote unquote, beauty standards. And um, I think that even when I was in college, uh, study abroad um, back in 2011, which isn't that long ago, um, in Chinese class, we were learning about people who have double eyelid or single eyelid. And that was the first time in my life as a young 20 two-year-old, so around your guys' age, mm -hmm. where I found out that they're in China and in a lot of other countries, they really are concerned about having double eyelid or, you know, if you have a single eyelid, mm -hmm. like, what are you going to do? And, and I think that's obviously very unfortunate and mm -hmm. sad that there's this hyper-focus on back to plastic surgery, which is that many women uh, and men, maybe, um, they get eye surgery. And my uh, my father is a retired uh, surgeon uh, for oral surgery, but one of the things that I, um, or an anecdote, was we were talking in the kitchen, and he was, he looked me right in the eye, and we were talking about some other subject, and then he looked me in the eye and said, just so you're aware, I hope that you are always proud of your eyes, and of course, I was like, well, I mean, it's all I have, so I mean, I don't know, it was a very hard conversation for me to have, because the power dynamic is that he's the parent, I'm the kid. He's also the doctor, and I'm technically the patient, if you will. Um, and also the fact that he he has been able to be trained in certain plastic surgery practices. So the irony is that you know he's telling me that I should be proud of myself and my body and whatever da 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 da. But on the flip side, he's in an industry where he's there to correct people's, you know, I mean, insecurity. I mean that's. Right. Yeah. That's the moral yeah. of the story. And obviously these people come through to ask him to do those type of things. And of course, that was more of his uh, secondary job, if you will. His main job was being an oral surgeon. But um, it just kind of uh, threw me a little bit because it's like. First off, I don't really want someone to tell me what I should think about myself, period, because that's not really anyone's business, but your own business. Second you have to understand the power dynamic in your relationship before you just start spewing stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I think that was what kind of damaged me in a sense, because I had to be, what's that word, compliant in the response and say, okay, of course I won't do anything to my body. But in my heart, in my mind, I'm like, wow, I feel like shit. <laughs> like, I mean, there's no sense of like, like respect to my own identity as a person, right? Because mm -hmm. there's an imposition. And I think that's what I get frustrated, especially with influencers and people online who like, you know, start these trends and whatever. And it's, it, it's a moneymaker, obviously. Mm -hmm. And even the wing effect, I mean, don't get me wrong. I do the wing effect. I've practiced multiple times. Mm -hmm. I have fun with it because I like it, but there's still a, a little hidden voice. that's like, well, why? It's elongating your eyes. Yeah. Which you is know, what we're born with. Yes. And, <laughs> Also, the fact is, maybe I have a, a, a jealous streak with, you know, certain people who are like, oh, let me just jump on the train of, like, trendiness and, like, mm -hmm. let me just sell this point. And, like, you y'all know that I'm hot shit because I'm an influencer and I've, I've gained this many followers or blah, 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 you know. And at the end of the day, if any, you know, Asian American or any Asian out there who wants to have followers and things like that, hypothetically speaking, mm -hmm. I think 
I mean, maybe I'm going to be slightly bitter about it, but I think a lot of influencers abroad as well as domestic, they have to work almost twice to maybe three times as hard just to get the kind of, if you will, you know, um, chatter on their page. Um, and it's ironic because it's like the it's like the tables have turned, right? And yeah. we're like, wait a second, how'd this happen here? Um, so anyways, it, it's a very nuanced conversation and I appreciate Libby for you bringing it up and that's, it's good. It's important. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that input. Um, but like with the whole Fox, I think it just frustrates me because mm. for over a decade, I'm sitting around like crap. I hate my eyes. They look like shit. They're these tiny little like slits in my head. Mm. And then you see, I think the first one was like my friend Jing. She was on another episode with um, for Peace Corps, but she w- sent me the video and it's like literally of this girl I like on Instagram, like holding back her eye. Yeah. I'm like, so this is cool now. Like I'm finally accepted, but it's only to the point. It's like when I'm going to get really blunt right now, but like when white people do something, then it's cool. Yep. Yeah. But it's like, we've had this for millions of years. Yeah. Like, yeah. The dawn of time. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just really annoying, like having these, white people claim this space mm-hmm. of like our unique eye shape I guess you could say yeah and it's finally cool when white people do it but then when we were growing up with it in the early thousands mm-hmm. it was like the worst thing in the world I don't know yeah. it's just really frustrating like seeing like it's not like seeing something that's we're born with we have to deal with the the challenges of it and it's not cool until some white girl on Instagram does it right and yeah. I, and I think that plays into the whole idea around I mean, cultural appropriation yeah. um, and just how frustrating it is to, I mean, for me, I, this is just my own personal view, obviously, so take it or leave it, but I cringe hard whenever I oh, see yeah. people in, you know, cheap house or Han Fu's or whatnot, and even the Han look, which is, you know, um, the Korean dress, right? And, you know, all these traditional dresses are, um, I don't call them costumes because it's, it's, it's actually, uh, there's a historical reason for why people wear them. Um, but um, the point of it is it frustrates me a little bit when, I mean, even back down to adoption, uh, there's plenty of families who, you know, they get little uh, silk jackets and things. And mm. um, even, I mean, I don't know if you all have this kind of visceral reaction, but whenever you see like, um, at least I saw this in professors or people in like, you know, higher education or whatever, um, white, usually white women, <laughs> older, who had like mm-hmm. this, the stereotypical Chinese jacket with the, you know, this little buttons and things and like the design. And every time I'd see those people, I'd just be like, oh, my life is over. Um, and I know it's not really over, but like internally I'm screaming because I'm like, this is just, what are you doing? You're, you're mm-hmm. being completely... I mean, I get it. It probably was made by some Western whatever designer out there. But the point of the matter is that, like, um, it, I don't know. It's a catch-22. In one way, I'm like, oh, yay, you're you're being, like, open to other cultures. But in another way, it's like, do you really have to do that, really? Like, it's, like, no different than someone putting, you know, chopsticks in their hair, right? Like, in one way, you're like, oh, that's cool. You can put your hair up, you know, fancy that. Like, I can't do that. I don't. I just put my hair in a bun and call it good. But the point I'm making is this like it's it comes down to the trend, right? And the idea of like showcasing 
you know, what you, what you know and quote unquote, what you don't know or something. And, um, just as a kind of another vein, I guess, is language is that like, I don't know about y'all, but for me, I personally get really mad about white people, specifically Americans who speak better Chinese than I do. And yeah. I know that, I don't know, you know, it, it just comes down to this whole idea around when they go to China or, it, you know, I don't know if y'all have been back to China since your adoptions, but um, you will notice this if you do go back uh, or when you do go back is that the minute that your white friend or whoever you're around is white speaking Mandarin Chinese and horrible, just to put it that way, they still get like so much credit and so much like, mm-hmm. you know, the gold star of participation. And meanwhile, if you struggle with trying to speak a few sentences in Mandarin, the common people or the local people, whether they're educated or not, some people are very curt and to the point. Um, no, you suck at Chinese. You're terrible. Mm-hmm. That's what I experienced in my study abroad. And that's something that I want to warn other people, adoptees especially, because it's not that I'm trying to like infiltrate their mind and be like, just to scare you guys. No, I want people to be aware that they, this is not a surprise, you know, like you're going to get judged really hard. And yeah. I think we deal with that a lot already, you know, in our daily life, in our, you know, college life or whatnot. So I want people to be aware that, you know, you're going to have to learn how to, you know, make a good defense, you know, for yourself so that you can protect your mind and your body because people can be um, abrupt and rude and um, they might think that they're trying to help you. But at the end of the day, you're like, uh, that was not helpful. That was frankly insulting. So anyways, yeah. I know that was kind of a tangent, but basically, yeah, I think the language thing is really something that's frustrating or even other people who aren't Chinese who speak Chinese better or Mandarin better than you or me. (laughs) It's like, wow, I work so darn hard, even in school or grade school or whatever time that you decide to learn, or even if you want to learn at age 50 or whatever, it doesn't matter. But the point is, it's like, whenever you try to learn, it's like, people are like, not very encouraging sometimes. And you're just like, wow, this is frustrating. So Mm -hmm. this is why I want people to understand that if you want to learn Mandarin, go ahead. Like, I'm, I'm all for learning, but just be aware that you will have, you know, as I say, a haters going to hate. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. be careful. <laughs> Protect uh, your heart. Yeah. And I think that's like advice for younger adoptees. I wish someone told me that because I know mm-hmm. I like went back and forth with Chinese school growing up. And I think there's a part of me that just didn't take to it because there's like this emotional block of I'm going to be a fraud either way. Like, I don't mm-hmm. speak like a native person, so why am I even trying? But then I speak Spanish, and obviously I have an accent, and I make grammatical mistakes on the daily. But for me, it's like it was between learning Spanish and Mandarin. Like, learning Spanish was almost easier because I didn't have any connection. There was no bias. There was no, like, oh, my God, I'm supposed to be good at this because I'm yeah. from Latin American country from Spain. There's yeah. no, like, heritage-based pressure. But with Mandarin, yeah. I'm like... <laughs> Crap. Yeah, yeah. I can't do it. I know Libby, your husband. So Libby, quick background. Libby's husband's from yeah. China, and so I don't know if you want to expand on this a little. Yeah, like I. So basically, my mom did really great and really tried to put me through Chinese, and I went to like this little church in the basement. This like cute little old Asian lady teaching Chinese, um, mm-hmm. but the one of the really big problems for me was 
in my in Portland public schools, you, or at least when I was going, I don't know if this is still current, um, you were forced to take Spanish starting in grade three. It was something requ- like you didn't have a choice. That is something that you did for a grade. And so I started taking Spanish. And what would happen is I would get the languages mixed up. It would be really hard for me to focus in and be like, this is Spanish. I would, I would basically do like Spanglies. It was horrible. Mm. And at that point, I think after like a year or something, I was like, I can't do this. And of course, if I'm going to make the decision between one language or the other, I'm going to do the one that I'm going to get the grade in because that's the most, that's the important one. Like that's schooling. This is a hobby. Like I'm doing air quotes. A hobby to learn my Chinese. So I dropped Chinese and now like I did Spanish all the way up until like college second year, got all my language credits done. I'm like, I'm done. I'm done speaking Spanish. (laughs) I like, I know it enough. Like you plot me in a Spanish speaking country. I'll sound a little funky, but I'll survive. Like Mm -hmm. my and like now here I am and like I know Spanish, don't really know Chinese. My husband is full native Chinese, born and raised. He's here on visa. Um, he's trying to get a green card. His whole family's over there, basically like mega Chinese. That's what I call mm-hmm. them. <laughs> and um he took me back in twenty eighteen and mm-hmm. I didn't know I knew like ni hao, basically. And mm-hmm. I didn't know Jack crap and that was like I wish somebody would have prepared me because I went for a month not mm. knowing any Chinese none of his family spoke English his mom basically knew how to say eat sit down and oh. like that's it mm-hmm. and f- for that whole month not Gung my husband was the only person that I could speak to in English nobody yeah. knew English and that was really lonely and then having to sit in on all these family dinners and not understand anything not only was it horrifically boring I wanted to scrape my eyes out but also like I wanted to know what they were saying and that was really hard and then like having to be pushed to the back of everything because I didn't know Chinese Mm -hmm. like when we would go eat dinner I would be shoved at like the farthest back end of the table because I didn't want any of the waiters talking to me and like when we would go shopping I couldn't say anything because the moment that I spoke perfect English boom prices go up I can't get a good deal get made Mm -hmm. fun of and like it was yeah I wish somebody would have warned me about that because that was really and like I don't honestly I don't think anybody could have really prepped me for that because it was just really stressful and then like there was a time when Addie and I went back to China and we there was like this huge miscommunication Addie, do you remember this at the pool? Oh, <laughs> oh my no. God. I okay, forgot I about this. I won't, I won't elaborate too much. Basically, there was well, a you huge can share. Mis- it's okay. <laughs> we went swimming, and you're supposed to wear swim caps and this, like, special red underwear or red swim bathing suit bottom. I don't know. We didn't oh, have yeah. it. The mm. women No, were... it was a swim cap. We were supposed to wear a swim cap or something. Wasn't it a yeah, swim cap? Yeah, but yeah, that. and like I can women... relate to that. <laughs> Yeah, the women were so horrible, and they were trying to, like, they were pointing at us, they mm-hmm. were laughing at us, they were, asking, like, try, like now looking back, they were trying to ask us, like, why aren't you doing this? Yeah. Right. And we were like, we don't know, and they yeah. were like, okay, well, like, they were pushing us into the showers, it was intense, and we oh. came running out to Addie's dad, and we were, like, sobbing, and Addie's dad yeah. was like, you should have just screamed, I would have Because we went in into the women's locker room, and so my yeah, dad was yeah. outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure, and sure. we were just like, that was 
so traumatizing for both of us like we that was the first time when we were confronted with like okay we're in a place that we don't we look like we fit in but we don't and we don't know how to survive like if something else had happened something really bad had happened we wouldn't have been able to it would have just been us fending for ourselves and it's it was like really scary so I think that's something that's really important it's like you absolutely need the basics to take care of yourself when you're in a situation that you look like you yeah should know everything but you don't because yeah. it's it's really hard anyway it's for your own protection lot, but... like for your safety though right and yeah not to mention it like if yeah darn it I wish I'd met you guys sooner because I would have told I would have educated I'm not educated I would have informed you educated yeah. sounds so formal but I would have informed y'all because I actually experienced similar thing that you guys did with the swim cap situation um I was at a hotel and yeah the yeah, it was a hotel it was a hotel yeah, the, yeah. the rule was you're supposed to wear a swim cap because I, and I, I thought at first I was like because um, when I got to the counter, cause there was a counter before you get to the, um, swim, uh, what's it called? The locker room. And so, um, uh, what's it called? The, the attendant was like, um, where are you going? And I'm like, I'm going to go swimming. And they go, yeah, hold on a second. And of course, because my broken Chinese didn't really, didn't really help. They knew that they could, you know, obviously charge me. So they charged me to get a swim cap. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it wasn't that much money, but in my mind, it was about the principle because if I had mm-hmm. known, you know, um, entering the hotel and like, if there had been like a sign that said, you know, we require that you wear a swim cap, you know, again, it comes down to direction, right? And like every country has their own way of giving direction. But the problem is it, 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 um, I mean, frankly, it pissed me off because I was like, well, are they just trying to, you know, swindle me a little bit because mm-hmm. I'm in a five-star hotel, you know, a hotel is a business. They're going to expect to, you know, literally make you pay for the crumbs on the floor. You know, like I'm being mm-hmm. kind of facetious here, but <laughs> the point is, this is like, I get to the desk and then the guy's like, or the, I don't know if it was a woman or a man, but they were like, yeah, you need a, you need to get a swim cap. You're not allowed in the pool. And so finally I got the swim cap and, you know, sucked it up and hung out with my friends and whatnot. But for y'all's experience, yeah, I can imagine that was like, holy crap, like, this is so stressful, and this is so frustrating, and especially because uh, it, it sounds like they were kind of handling you guys as well, which is kind of like, Yeah, whoa, they, they were, whoa. like, moving us to, like, yeah, like grab yeah, yeah. And stuff. Yeah, so I can imagine that you guys were like, okay, I want to throw hands at these people, like, why are they touching me, and, like, you know, trying to push me in this one direction or this direction or whatever, um, you know, what right do they have, right, mm-hmm. and um, this is, I'm so glad that we're all even having this conversation because, I mean, Maybe this will help someone in the future if they go back mm-hmm. to China. But also at the end of the day, I mean, this is just, again, this is an obvious yeah. example of why it would have been nice if, you know, in post-adoption services, specifically for, in our case, international slash Chinese adoption, if our adoptive parents had also learned this too and said, you know, as a whole family, you all learn together, like, okay, this is some of the customary things you need to understand if you go to China. Like, you know, y'all went to what a heritage tour trip. Yeah. So I also went on one, but I was actually helping to lead it, which was even more intense in in a different way, because literally I was, um, you know, I I, I signed up for it. I was aware, but um, the rules were very all over the place. And so I'm glad at least I played it safe. But in other cases, um, if, if the rules aren't set in black and white, yeah, I mean, if you're a rebellious person or you're someone who's like, no, I'm going to go on my own way. I don't really care about the rules. 
Um, bye, <laughs> you know? And so long story short, you know, with the heritage tour camp, I, I tried to be frank with people. I said, look, don't be rude. You know, if you're not going to eat something, at least, you know, be discreet about not eating it. You don't have to be mm -hmm. like making a big huss, you know, like a fuss about it. And mm -hmm. also, you know, you need to understand how, I mean, uh, you went down to the idea around tipping, right? Because in America, you're kind of required to tip when you go to a restaurant. It'd be kind of a nice thing to do. But in China, if you tip, that's a really big insult to the cook. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those kind of nuances are things that people need to understand in basic English to be like, this is not acceptable. And, uh, or this is acceptable, like the do's and the don'ts, um, so that you don't break relationships. And I think that was something that I learned in China as well. And I'm sure you also learned it both of you, you know, where relationships are super important, whether you're at the store or whether you're with, you know, a friend of a friend's house, you know, being the guest and all that stuff. Um, it's like when in Rome do what the Romans do. But if you don't know that, <laughs> yeah. how are you going to do it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, do you all have any other advice you'd like to share with other adoptees or younger adoptees, maybe adoptive parents or perspective? Oh, Adopted yes. I think, Go for it. I think most importantly, the idea of advocacy is really important. I think a lot of parents think that they know how to advocate for their child or children. But I think from reading on the groups and stuff, a lot of parents, I think sometimes they take things possibly a little too far, but also more on the sort of self-gratification route. Um, and... For example, I'm, I don't know if y'all ever did the, you know, stupid family tree projects and stuff or like mm -hmm. going to the doctors and having the doctor be like, oh, what's your family history, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. Or like when you go to the DMV and you have to get your license, if you want to get your license, you know, you're dealing with, again, a public person, uh, someone who works with the government and yeah. you're expected to talk for yourself. And that's fine because, I mean, hello, adulthood. <laughs> um, but I think the one thing that... I've noticed in a lot of parent groups that I've been in is a lot of parents. Oh, that's another thing is oversharing. The parents tend to overshare yeah. too much about yeah. their child's yeah. identity and problems and health and da, 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 da. And um, I mean, I was, I, I can attest to that for my own self, but I think the moral of the story is, is like, um, yeah, advocate, advocating for your child, I think should be defined. And of course, this is my definition. Feel free to argue it, but it's like, it should be about, kind of it's it's a give it's a giving relationship I mean when your child runs into a problem at school or with the principal or with the teacher or with society or whatever I think most importantly being able to say hey I'm open to talking with you about this obviously this was really problematic I'm sorry that this person said this to you like acknowledging your child's pain um and being able to say I I've never had this myself, right? Because that's true. But I will do my best to advocate for you and help you get through this. Um, I think that, you know, the ways that my parents tried to advocate for me, unfortunately, they were self-serving for themselves. And in it's kind of a disguise, right? Because in one way, um, an outsider would be like, oh, no, your parents definitely advocated for you. They fought for you, blah, blah, blah. But in essence, if you look at the really, you know, nitty gritty details, you'd be like, oh, wait that was actually more for their own clout. And I think that like advocacy work is about 
continuously working and self-improving, right? Like it's not because you just do one nice thing for your child and then bam, you're off the hook and you're like parent of the year. And I know that sounds a little bitter sounding, but I just want more adoptive parents to understand that this is a progress that they need to work on themselves, work on their, work with their child, work with their child's peers and parents and teachers. And of course, it comes down to education, meaning no one is required to educate anyone, right? That's on your own volition. And I think that if more parents were able to say, hey, look, if someone comes to you and talks about something negatively about China, or in our case, right, because we're adoptees from China, um, and you don't feel like answering, then that is the that is the perfect time for a parent to be like, look, if you would like, I would be happy to give you some pointers or feedback on how you can defend and, you know, redirect the conversation. Because at the end of the day, our peace and autonomy as individuals in the public world is super critical to our survival. And I wished that more parents were knowledgeable on how to even advocate for themselves and their child. Okay, I have one more thing. For adoptees, because I think a lot of the time when we're trying to, like, be perfect and, you know, be enough and overcome, or maybe we're not realizing we're overcompensating, but when we're taking these actions that result in, like, overcompensation, maybe we feel like we lose our voice. What would you say to maybe a younger adoptee who feels like they're, they've lost their voice and that they, they can't speak up for themselves anymore because they have to be X, Y, and Z to keep their adoptive parents happy and they don't want to disappoint anyone and maybe they're avoiding re-traumatization. Mm. Um, what would you say to a younger adoptee or an older adoptee, just someone who feels like their voice kind of got taken out of the equation? Hmm. I think, I mean, this would be an individual by individual basis, but I think it is. it all comes down to, like, um, finding ways that you that make you happy and like ultimately by having different groups or organizations that you can work with then can someone find a voice because for example my discovery of um cci which is china's children international which that was through just going on google and looking at someone's blog and that blog was um written by an adoptee and so um, that was back in what, 20, I want to say like 2011, 2012, something like that. And um, since I've been involved with CCI back since 2013, that's helped me personally to find my voice. Of course, other people might find, you know, music or dance or um, a college club or even developing their own college club. I know that more and more of them are being developed um, either for transracial adoptees or transnational adoptees, or even like a Chinese adoptee club within their college, like those kind of instances are, I think, important ways to find your voice and, or find one's voice. And I also think it, you know, one wants to, I mean, advocacy work, I think it's very tiring at times, right? And emotionally as well as physically and mentally. So I think the point is to make you know, small baby steps to, to come to um, your own sense of like, identity for yourself. And how, how do you define that? And um, I think that that comes down to, you know, who you talk to, and, um, 
you know, what kind of information you want to seek out. And I think it, it's, it's, I mean, it sounds cliche, but it is a sign of empowerment, I think, as an individual to be able to say, I looked this up for myself. I'm interested. I want to speak about it. And it matters to me, right? And I think um, in order to get one's voice, especially around family or friends, I mean, sometimes by stating that you're not going to engage is saying that you have a voice. Now, other people might say, well, no, you should fight. You should really like speak up and yeah, no, yell and scream about it. But in some cases, that's not going to get you anywhere. You're just going to like spin your wheels. And for me, for example, I have decided not to engage with my family on certain topics to save my sanity. And I think that's most important for especially adoptees, especially if you're in an environment where you feel like you're being silenced or people are not listening to you and so forth. Then you do have to unfortunately you know, pull up your bootstraps, if you will, and navigate your own way, make your own path. And, you know, <laughs> to be frank, screw all the haters, you know, people are always going to hate, you know, what you do, that's not going to align with them. But that's the point is that you're making your own path and saying, hey, if you want to be with me, cool. If you're going to be against me, why well, don't even want you on my team? Mm-hmm. See you later. Or see you never. <laughs> and I know it sounds a little spiteful, but it's like, look, we only have one life. Yeah. And we don't have enough time to waste on other people's complaints and issues and, you know, discomfort. Like, that's the moral mm-hmm. of the story. My existence, and this is just me, but my existence is not for other people's satisfaction or happiness. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've been trying to work with because I'm not sure, but from what we've talked about, you know, people-pleasing and perfectionism they're like partners, they, they go hand in hand. And that's something I'm trying to work on as a 30 year old, which in some ways I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm so behind. But in some ways, some of us just had to survive a lot of different things that made us have to grow up fast. And that's yeah. just a reality. And I want people to know that if you feel like your voice is not being heard or you feel like it's being stifled, um, you're going to have to sometimes just progressively wake up, you know, get your life in order, however you do, make your coffee, make your tea, whatever, and, you know, tell the world however you would like, of course, you know, in a safe manner, um, you know, who you are about. And I think, you know, journaling or blogging or writing or reading or singing or any of the kind of arts is a good way to express one's, you know, identity. And, Mm -hmm. of course, if you want to sell jewelry, in your case, right, Mm -hmm. Natty, you were talking about jewelry, you know, if you want to use that as your platform, cool. If mm-hmm. you would rather use, you know, your cooking skills as a platform, cool. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of us adoptees, right, is that we, I mean, it sounds weird to say, but we are self-made. We make ourselves, right? And um, no one can take that from us. And even if they do, we can say, you know what? Cool. Good to know you. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it does suck sometimes. It's tiring, especially if you have to block out, you know, people you've had 10 plus years with, you know, friends or high school mates or whatnot. And I mean, I guess sometimes as the saying goes, there's a season for everyone, right? Like meaning you have friends or family that you're going to have a season with and maybe you're going to be on a good season. Maybe you're going to have an off season or maybe you're going to have no season. And that's your decision. That's the, that's the beauty of self-advocacy. And yes, it's going to be lonesome at times, but I think with the community such as, you know, online communities like CCI or, um, SAT, which is Subtle Asian Adoptee Traits, mm-hmm. which I contributed to the beginnings of. But um, those kind of groups are, I think, very important. And 
Um, at the end of the day, I think it's all it's also fine to step away and say, hey, you know, I'm going to take a little hiatus for myself. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. that is part of having a voice is saying I'm putting some boundaries up. It's for my own sanity. It's for my own peace. And it's nothing to do with y'all. I don't hate you, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And even the idea of even explaining that, I mean, um, that in itself is kind of anxiety inducing for certain people, right? They feel like they have to explain themselves to be like, look, Mm -hmm. I don't, it's not that I don't want to be your friend, but it's just not working out. Yeah. (laughs) Like this relationship is not working out. So um, I think baby steps is most critical. Um, And also being able to reflect back on your past and be like, wow, holy crap, I came a long way. Like this Mm -hmm. is, and I know that some people are like, oh, that sounds so phony, whatever, you know, but I'm like, no, I think it's like important to acknowledge kind of the, the good and bad experiences of your life and how you've overcome things, but also knowing like, you're always going to, there's always going to be work for you to do if you want to do it. And if you don't want to do it, that's okay for that day. And then just go back to it another day or don't ever go back to it. You know, Mm -hmm. like that's the choice um, that we can make if we want to express ourselves. I I really like hearing your point of view. Libby, do you have any other advice you'd like to add? I think we covered quite a bit. Yeah. For the viewers, if they want to get a hold of you, do you have an Instagram handle or an email that you would like to share with them? Oh yeah, sure. Um, So I am on Instagram and um, I did take a little hiatus, but I'm back on. So um, they can feel free to add me on that. Um, so my handle is mingling44, M-I-N-G-A-L-I-N-G 44. And um, I'm also on Facebook under Ming Fox Weldon. And yeah, there's only one of me, so it shouldn't be too hard um, to find me. Um, so if anyone wants to be able to private message me, feel free to refer back to the podcast so I know who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, lately, I've been getting some scammy um friend requests on Facebook and Instagram. So if you could definitely identify why you are contacting me, that'd be great. Um, And also, yeah, I'm always up to chit chat. Thank you so much. Um, I will be putting all of that information to contact Ming in the description. Um, Huge thank you to you for taking this time to chat with us and share some of your story and just your insight on these topics. It's really important to the adoptee community that we have these conversations together. lost my thought um if you want to contact adoptee meets world you can reach us through email at adoptingmeetsworld at gmail.com and on instagram at adoptingmeetsworld underscore don't forget to share amw with your friends and family and if you're listening on a platform where you can leave a review or five stars ideally we would love that um let us know what you think and we'll talk to you soon bye <laughs>